Well, thank you, David and team. Most interesting, the work on the mercy ships. Of course, as an electrical type, I was interested in the engine room. And uh, remembering that back in the 60s, when I was still working in oceanography, in the late 60s, shipboard power was at best unreliable. Um, so, with modern electronics, obviously, it has to be a whole lot better than it was then. <laughs> uh, okay, well, before we go very far, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to you, of coming into your presence, of singing these songs of praise and of hope, of knowing that hope in Jesus. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now, that you would um, interrupt our thoughts, that you would direct us, that you would help us to hear your word, that we might be encouraged, strengthened, changed where, we're, where we need changing, Lord. That we might draw closer to You and be better reflections of the nature of the Lord Jesus. Thank You, Father, for this awesome privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage this morning is from Luke 16, and while you're turning there, um, I recently read a story about a teacher who had taught school in one of the rougher neighborhoods in New York City. The situation in the school was so bad that there were uh, police officers stationed in the halls, Teachers were routinely assaulted and intimidated. This, uh, this one fellow learned the realities of life pretty quickly. On his first day of class, things seemed to start off fairly well. The students sat relatively quietly in their seats, gave some attention to him. But then at a predetermined time, the entire class got up from their seats and went to the back of the classroom and proceeded to shoot crabs. Teacher did not react. But the next day, he was prepared. He had taken note of the fact that the place where they shot crabs, the floor, there was a metal plate. Apparently, that metal plate gave them the right kind of surface. He wired the plate. And the next day, when the class went back to carry on their game, he connected the plate. Uh, things happened fairly quickly after that, as you might imagine. Uh, and one extremely large fellow walked up to the teacher and said to him, Nice touch, Professor. Nice touch. 
think you can tell that on one hand, the fellow didn't really appreciate receiving a shock. And yet, on the other hand, he had a kind of admiration for the way this teacher had handled things. The teacher was shrewd in dealing with this difficulty. And then someone invited him out back to have it out. But what the student didn't know is that this teacher was also a Golden Gloves boxing champion in his weight class. And after the principal informed him that he was on his own, the teacher went out back and whipped the toughest fellows in the class. And that's when the real education began. My point in telling you this story is that it's possible for one shrewd person to appreciate the shrewdness of another, even though he has suffered from it. The student didn't really appreciate getting zapped, but he couldn't help but appreciate the motivational methods of the teacher. And perhaps this young thug wasn't so wasn't um, interested in winning friends so much, but he did have an interest in influencing people. To see the teacher do a masterful, masterful job at influencing his class was, in a sense at least, an inspiration for him. Luke chapter 16, and beginning at verse 1. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. The master commended the dishonored manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, if the young thug could appreciate the motivational methods of the teacher, uh, the rich man in our text could appreciate the methods of his former manager. I'm sure he didn't appreciate being defrauded, but he did at least have an appreciation for the skill and the shrewdness of the steward in making provisions for his future. The steward, the manager, who was about to lose his position, had used that position 
and his master's possessions in such a way as to make friends and thus prepare for his own future. And even the master had to agree that the steward was shrewd. Perhaps in the words of the young thug, the master could have said to his manager, nice touch. The problem is that at first glance, this parable seems to go against the grain. It seems, at a quick reading, that the Lord Jesus is commending a scoundrel for his shady practices, congratulating him on the illicit use of his employer's resources to his own personal ends. And it is a parable that has pitted commentators and preachers against each other for centuries, just because the word seems so strange to Western ears. But there's one thing that we have learned as we've studied the Scriptures together. That we should never take a verse or even a whole passage out of its context if we want to really understand what the Spirit of God wants to say to us. And remember, the chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles that are so familiar to us are not part of the text. They were added in the 13th and 15th century, 16th centuries. So, and frankly, in many cases, they simply intrude on the text. They break it up where it shouldn't be broken. Um, but uh, in the previous chapter, Jesus had told three parables about the love and the persistence of God and how he rejoices when we return to him. But even these parables need to be seen in their context. Now, the uh, previous speakers have tried to give us some of that. But um, to see the whole context, though, we need to go back at least another chapter. Back in chapter 14, uh, Jesus is um, speaking to a great crowd. We don't know how big this crowd was, but that, by the way. And uh, in verse four, uh, chapter 14 and verse 25, he says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not idle to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. You look at it just very briefly, and what's the issue that Jesus is addressing? Well, it's 
cost of being a disciple, the use of material resources. And that's something that the, the Pharisees and the scribes couldn't quite get their heads around. They understood correctly that the role of, of the disciple was to be one of total dedication to the rabbi. To be with him wherever he went. To learn to live and to think and to act the way the rabbi did. But they also understood that their financial wealth was a result of their own piety. Of their attendance to the minutiae of the law. They thought that God was blessing them in return for their good deeds, their prayers, their fasting, their sacrifices. And they couldn't understand why Jesus would allow tax collectors and sinners, the dregs of society, as far as they were concerned. They couldn't understand why Jesus would allow such folk anywhere near him. In another context, in Mark 2, Jesus had said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So, in this passage, Jesus told them parables that illustrate the love and the persistence of God and how he rejoices when we come back to him. And by the time we turn the page at Luke 16, Jesus is returning to the issue of the cost of discipleship. Now, there are a number of details in this story that would have been quite familiar to Luke's first readers as they were to those who heard Jesus that day. Frankly, they're unfamiliar to us. In this context, the rich man was likely an absentee landlord who had entrusted his estate to the care of his manager or steward. And as we'll see shortly, this estate was large and was apparently divided into a number of large parcels and rented out to tenant farmers. The... Uh, uh, the tenant farmers were expected to pay their rent in a share of the crop, whether it was olive oil or grain or some other commodity. There was another possibility, of course, that the rich man's estate was more in financial dealings than in real estate. In that case, the various debtors would have been borrowing at interest. And the interest likely ending up in the manager's pocket. The manager in this case was apparently not the most honest person in town. Um, in 21st century language, he was likely padding his expense account, enjoying lavish meals and accommodations, a limousine, first class travel, perhaps a private plane, and so on. By the evidence, he would be classed with the tax collectors and sinners. It's interesting, he didn't challenge 
the master's assertion that he was squandering his resources, the resources of his estate. This man was consuming much of his master's wealth, but was producing little. He wasn't working for his master, really. He was working for himself. And unlike Joseph, who, in the Old Testament, who saw his stewardship as a sacred trust, and who for this reason refused his master's wife, this manager seems to have helped himself to everything that was within his reach. And eventually, his reputation came to the attention of this rich man, who terminated his position while giving him a short time to prepare the account records for his successor. Now, if you've ever been laid off or fired, whether for cause or not, then you know the sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach as you try to figure out what to do next, how to uh, provide for your family. This manager was in that position, trying to secure his future, trying to ensure he would not end up on the street. And like a flash, the solution came to him. He would make use of his position, temporary position now, and his master's possessions in the little time that was left in such a way that he could provide for his needs far into the future. And while his position and his master's possessions would be taken from him, he could make friends who would take care of him. So he called in each and every one of his master's debtors. Each seems to have been a party to the deception. Each was benefited by a significant reduction in their obligation to the uh, steward's master. And thus all became indebted to the steward. Before we consider um, the master's response to being defrauded like this, though, or our Lord's commentary on the parable, we should take note that this steward, this manager, was really pretty corrupt. He was unrighteous both at the beginning of the parable and at the end. He's not just unrighteous as a person. He was unfaithful as a manager. Uh, Unfaithful to his task and to his master. But it was that unfaithfulness that necessitated his shrewdness in preparing for his future. Every indication points to the fact that the allegations against the steward, the squandering of the master's possessions, was accurate. The steward didn't change for the good. He only became more shrewd in doing evil. The steward's attitudes and actions were all motivated by self-interest. And he involved others in his scam. It's inconceivable that the rich man's debtors were not co-conspirators with the steward. They knew what they were doing. The steward then appealed to their greed as well. In the telling of this parable, Jesus didn't minimize this evil. 
nor did he in any way commend the manager for it. But probably the biggest surprise of the parable is the master, who had just been defrauded by his steward, is able to praise him, like the, the young thug in school. Not for the good that he had done, nor for the ethical aspects of his deed, but simply for the shrewdness that he displayed. Like one crook applauding the deeds of another crook. And yet, Jesus did say, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And again, we need some definitions to understand what Jesus is saying. Well, the sons of this world, they are the unbelievers. Those who do not yet trust the Lord Jesus, who have not yet received the fullness of salvation that He has provided for them. Luke 9.41 And Jesus refers to these people as a faithless and twisted generation. In, 11, in Luke 11.29 He calls them an evil generation. These are the sons of this world. And quite simply, they operate the way the world operates. There are people at the top of every legitimate bank and legitimate enterprise all over the world who are corrupt and are inclined to use every device they can to get what they want. And there are crooks who create their Ponzi schemes. And there are people who don't ask very many questions, but when they are told something is going to be lucrative, they can't sign up fast enough. They get sucked into these schemes because everybody in this world is trying to get, take what they've got and multiply it to secure their future. It's just how it works. And by and large, they're good at it. They're shrewd. As a consequence, the governments of this world have to have all kinds of agencies and auditors going through books and records and so on. And there are all kinds of agencies, both public and secret, who sneak around to find out the schemes that are going on as people work to secure their future. And then there are the sons of light. These are the believers, those who trust the Lord. Jesus came to, the, who, who trust Him, trust the Lord Jesus to provide for them both in time and in eternity. And this business of, of being in the light is, is a, a fairly frequent description um, throughout the New Testament. But Jesus said, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I'm still puzzled. What did he mean? 
Well, what did the manager do? He used the resources at his disposal, that is, his manager's property, money, influence, name. He used those resources to secure a future for himself. Because it was all a fraud, it may well have been merely a house of cards. But the point is that he used what he had to secure his future. What did Jesus mean when he talked about unrighteous wealth? Well, one commentator put it this way. This wealth is termed unrighteous because it is an element of fallen society's experience. It belongs to the unrighteous life among sinners. It burns up. In verse 9 it says that when it fails, that is, when your time to deal with money is over, it will fail. It's only useful for the here and now. It's only a part of this fallen and godless system. Jesus is challenging us to be at least as shrewd in our dealings with money in the light of eternity as the corrupt manager was in his dealings with it for mere time. We are called to use our money to make friends for ourselves so that when it fails, that is when this life is over, they may receive us into the eternal dwelling. Now, some of us are called to make the gospel our full-time work. In doing that work, they're making friends for themselves and for us, impacting the lives of others, and maybe of generations of others, who will come to the Lord, who will bow before Him as their Lord and Savior. Think of the, the folk who are supported in part by this assembly. Folk like the Jenkinsons, like uh, Dave Donaldson, like the O'Burns, like the Barneses, and many others. Think of the ministries and the people involved in them. And there are... Uh, think of other ministries as well. Things like Youth for Christ and people like Louis who are deeply involved. They also are working for the kingdom. And at the end of the day, these friends they have made for the Lord Jesus, they've made them with our help. And they'll be there to receive them and us into the eternal dwellings. These folk who are on the front line need our assistance. The Lord Jesus indicated that we should be using the unrighteous wealth that is in our hands to make friends for ourselves so that when it fails, they may receive us into the eternal dwellings. And all of us have the means to assist others in the proclamation of the gospel. Whether here in Porcupine or somewhere in Africa or in Cambodia, may only be a coin that we can give. It may be a large bank draft. It may be a one-time gift. It may be a gift that we are able to repeat monthly. But every gift so given helps both the recipient, who is then enabled and encouraged 
to do the work that God has given them. And the giver, who is then uh, reminded to pray for that person and that particular ministry. By our gifts and our praying, we become co-workers with them. And so share the rewards of that ministry. We've been given a great deal. We have been given, first of all, the incredible gift of grace in Jesus. The magnitude of that gift is just now, after more than 45 years of walking with Jesus, just now the magnitude of that gift is beginning to dawn on me. And I know that its fullness is quite beyond human grasp. But that God would care about me about you, to such an extent that He would rather die than live without you. That the Lord Jesus would gladly suffer for me and for you. That He would carry the full weight of the consequences of my sinfulness to the grave. And then He would then rise from the dead to present the blood of His sacrifice to the Father as... Complete atonement for me. It's just beyond understanding. And that's the most important gift that we've been given. What are we going to do with it? And even the most impoverished among us has the means to improve the life of someone else. We have time to invest in their eternity. We can pray. We can listen to them. We can share the Lord Jesus with them. And when the opportunity arises, we can help them materially. But of course, the time will come will not be possible to help anyone else into the presence of the Lord Jesus. Our own time will come. And at that point, our money will pass into the hands of someone else. The unrighteous wealth will fail us. But our Lord will not. Jesus uh, continued in his application of the story. He says, Luke 10, Luke 16, 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This world is a proving ground. How we handle the resources that a loving God has placed in our hands will reveal what is within us, for good or for ill. But, you know, 
read this passage, Jesus isn't saying anything earth-shattering here. The world follows the same pattern. First, you test the other with a little responsibility, with a small amount of money or authority. And the reward of a job well done is more responsibility. But if we should fail with a little bit, we shouldn't be surprised if we're not given more. So here, the material resources in our hands and what we do with them is a test. And our success here will determine the extent of the reward in eternity. The steward revealed who his true master was. He showed, he demonstrated that he couldn't serve two masters. His true master was his own appetite for pleasure and pleasant surroundings. And he couldn't satisfy that master and at the same time serve his other human master faithfully. And the test comes to us too. Who is our true master? Remember, the Pharisees were themselves deluded into thinking that their true master was God, when in fact their master was greed and the lust for power. And because they were deluded, they scoffed and ridiculed the Lord Jesus. The awesome fact, though, is that the Holy Spirit can break through that self-delusion, that lie. He can work behind the scenes to take away the animosity and to prepare our hearts to receive the Gospel. The astonishing, astonishingly good news of the Lord Jesus and His love and grace toward us. And the fact is that no one comes to Him unless the Spirit is at work calling and softening our hearts. And we have the awesome privilege and responsibility of working with Him. Whether as here in this passage it is our investing of our material resources into the lives of others, or whether it is in our praying or in our direct sharing of the Gospel, all of it is used by God for His purposes. Jesus addressed this parable to His disciples although he knew that others were listening in. And so he addresses us today. The question, the challenge is before us. Are we, and in what way and to what extent are we, using the money and the other resources that God has placed in our hands to make friends and disciples for the Lord Jesus? Perhaps you haven't made that choice, that basic choice yet yourself. Perhaps the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is working in you right now. Answer the question. Answer the question in your heart. And I would invite you to go down to the prayer room when we're dismissed here.
be someone there to, to help you with that decision. A few years ago, Ray Bolts wrote a song that tells a tale of faithfulness. It starts off, and you probably know this one. I dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me. We walked along the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing and then someone called your name. You turned and saw a young man. He was smiling as he came. Um, And then another man stood before you and he said, Remember the time that a missionary came to your church? His pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave. That's why I'm here today. One by one they came as far as the eye could see. Each one somehow touched by your generosity. Little things you've done. Sacrifices made. Unnoticed on the earth. But heaven now proclaims. And I know up in heaven you're not supposed to cry. But I was almost sure there were tears in your eyes as Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord. And he said, my child, look around you. For great is your reward. Father, help us this day. Help us to be diligent. To be wise in our use of the resources that you have given to us. Not only to in our direct working with others, uh, sharing the gospel with them, but also more indirectly in, in helping those whom you have called to uh, full-time work. Um, Lord, who, those who need Uh, the resources that we have to assist them. Father, help us. But help us first to make the Lord Jesus our Lord and our Savior. We ask all these things, Father, in, in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. And we give you thanks. In His name. Amen. The uh, team has another selection, I believe. Father, with this song we've been praying that you would just use us, that you would uh, lead us to give ourselves to you. We pray that this might be the prayer of our hearts as we leave here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.